it is about being loved. It's about claiming our identity as beloved of God. It's about understanding the love that we are given to share with the world. It's about living into that understanding of what it is to that we are loved. And so we are called to love. We are able to love because of God's power. Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy, with your hosts, Chelsea Simon, Dana Black, and Claire Watson. We're so glad that you're here for this seventh season called The Sermon Podcast Hour. During this season, Chelsea, Claire, and I are going to interview some of our favorite preachers about a sermon they've given. These sermons will be following the lectionary calendar from Epiphany all the way until Easter. In the various episodes, not only will you hear clips from the sermon, you will also get to hear the follow-up conversation with the preacher. Each preacher brings their own unique experiences, interpretations, and preaching styles. Our hope is to provide a well-rounded and expansive view of the scriptures, God, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy it. All right, y'all, we got an exciting episode for you today. We are talking with Brent Ross. Brent has served as a mentor and a colleague and a friend over the years. And if you haven't listened to his sermon yet on baptism, pause the episode right now and go and listen to it. We will put a link in the show notes. It's a really great sermon. And if you have questions about baptism, this might give you more questions or might help answer some, but it's a really great sermon. Just to tell you a little bit more about Brent, Brent Ross is the lead pastor at Normal Heights United Church in San Diego, California. Normal Heights United Church is a progressive church in the heart of the neighborhood of Normal Heights, and they are preparing to celebrate their building's 100-year anniversary. If you're ever in San Diego, stop by. It is a beautiful space. When Brent's not preaching, reading graphic novels, or working in the yard, he is planning for his escargot business, which he will launch when he retires. We hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Collective Table fans, here we are for another fun-filled episode. We're so excited to have Brent with us today, and we're going to be talking about his sermon on baptism. So let's just dive in. There's so many questions, you know, about baptism. I think it's one of those things that people who aren't didn't grow up in the church are kind of like, wait, what is this baptism thing? Like, why is this so important? Do I have to do it? What does it mean when I do it? And so we want to kind of dive into all of those questions. But Brent, first, I got to ask you, how disappointed were you that instead of going to Disney World, you were going to some Western themed park or whatever (laughs) it was? It's so interesting. Whatever that thing was. I don't know. (laughs) Utterly devastated. But also kids are like almost always constantly being like, well, that's what the adults said and they must know better like for a long time. So I I was so devastated. But then I was just like, well, you know, these 
people that are bigger than me, these adults with their authority, they must know that this is better, that this is a good idea. Like, all right, I'll get on the bus and we'll go and see what happens. It's a nice moment for kids when they sort of grow out of it and they're like, oh, these people mess up a lot. Like, I, I should doubt them. Totally. I have to say, like, I, I love the story. I was, you know, that's how you kick it off. I'm like, wow. And where is he going? Like, I, I wasn't sure of the connection between the story and baptism. And yet it just surfaced. And I, I, I loved that idea because the story was very captivating. Um, it drew me in. And then, you know, somebody, you know, here I am, I've grown up in the church. I know a lot about baptism, but for somebody who maybe doesn't or is new or is unfamiliar, it was a nice connection. Is it something, how, how, can you go back and just talk us through that connection of how you got there and what you think about it? Yeah, I, I think it sort of what I settled on was just the sense that it was like, well, this is kind of an awkward moment because we think about baptism in one way. We've been taught about baptism in one way. We see baptism, you know, I think about like whenever it's depicted in a movie, like, oh, brother, where art thou? Like these famous scenes. It's like, oh, this is because you've been bad and now you want to be good. So there's this awkward moment where every year it's like, well, then Jesus is like, I need to be baptized. And we're always like, well, this is kind of this is kind of awkward. I love picturing that moment with John the Baptist, like being very awkward, like Jesus being like, wading in the water and John being like, no, I'm not going to do this. I imagine it went on for a long time and people on the shore being like, this is really awkward. Like who's, who's going to come out on top on this? It just, our, our understanding of baptism, it's maybe some of it is that it's such a rich image that we have so many different theological perspectives on it, not only currently, but historically. There's this weird thing that like when Jesus is baptized, when John baptizes, the Bi the New Testament doesn't explain that to us. It's not like, here's what baptism is. So here's why the, it just assumes that the readers are going to know what this practice means. So there's all this awkwardness around it. And I just tried to be like, let's Let's start with the awkward questions. Let's start with permission to have awkward questions. Let's laugh about awkward moments. And then we can be like, okay, let's relax a little bit and then really think about what baptism may have meant in this moment and what it may mean for us. Yeah, I love that. I was a shy kid too, Brent, and I still am. And to ask questions where everybody else seems to kind of know what's going on, it's like to be the one that's like, I don't. And so I think there's a lot of places in Christianity that people might have that feeling. And I'm just, I'm wondering from you, like, why do you think we don't ask questions? Like, I feel like we ask questions about all, so many other things, but like Christianity, for some reason, I don't know, we don't want to go there. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. You know, there's just, it's so much weight around Christianity, so much weight around faith. It just such as like a heavy experience. And you know, there's so much church trauma, there's so much religious trauma that all of us, I mean, it's where I think we're hard pressed to find anyone that has not been marked, scarred, wounded in some way by all of that, or made a conscious decision to be like, I'm not going to notice it. That anytime we're in that space, we all are just like, I don't know, kind of like us kids getting on that bus to go to this like Western theme world. We're just like, well, I, I don't want to be one to ask a question. Like surely everybody else must know what's going on or the reasons why we're doing this. And we give that dynamic a little bit, whether intentionally or unintentionally, like, oh, everybody knows what's happening here. They know what this means. And I don't want to be the one to ask a question that makes me stand out or stick out because that's like a frightening place, especially in a church environment. How do you think about baptism? You, you had mentioned when we started this and maybe the audience didn't hear that you wrote this sermon three years ago and got 
got to come back and revisit it. Has there been any change? But how would you talk about baptism to individuals? Maybe it's regardless of whether they're familiar with Christianity as a faith practice or are completely new to it. Anytime I do a baptism, whether it's for an infant or an adult, and I sort of explain like, here's the liturgy we're going to use. Like we're a very contemporary, for lack of a better term, church, very relaxed, very casual, uh, very progressive in our theology, I would say. But then we always do the like baptism liturgy. And it's this like clumsy, like, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? And so every time I've got to sit down with, right, we have to like sit down with them and be like, okay, we're going to read this stuff and here's why, but here's what it means. And what I always love is is kind of some of what came out in that sermon, which is it really is about it is about being loved. It's about claiming our identity as beloved of God. It's about understanding the love that we are given to share with the world. It's about living into that understanding of what it is to that we are loved. And so we are called to love. We are able to love because of God's power. And I just, I always hone in on that. The fact that it's a gift. Uh, it's offered to us without price. God's love and grace is gift. This is not something you've earned. That's why we do infant baptism. Everything of his ministry is understood to begin at this moment where the word is your love. Not something that has been earned in this moment. Not something because he did one thing or that thing, because that's who he is. There doesn't have to be a certain amount of understanding or conceptualizing uh, something that might be ableist, a certain understanding of like, well, do you understand what this means? Whether folks understand or do not understand who of us could really ultimately understand, right? It is this understanding, I think, of like, you are loved, like how will you live into the fact that you are loved for the rest of your life. And that's what baptism is about. It's a community event. So people get to say like, we're going to help them understand that they're loved and they can love. That's our job, whether they are one or 101. I love the way, and I just thought about it right now, where you said, as in the United Methodist denomination, which all of us are, but everybody listening may not be, we do infant baptism. And a lot of people are like, why do you do infant baptism? Shouldn't you wait until they can understand and know? But I love the way you just said, do we ever really understand? Like we, like it doesn't, first off, it doesn't matter. God loved us from the moment we existed. Do you ever really understand how amazing that love is? And do we work at that our whole life is to really claim that belovedness? And I, I never thought about that until just now. So hmm. that's one of the things I really like about John Wesley um, as sort of the person who sort of kicked off Methodism is he was known as the theologian of love. And for him, it was like, that's the marker of God's power. That's the marker of who God is, is like, that's what God's power looks like. It looks like love. It's not going to look like wrath. It's not going to look like these. It will always look like love. And so I love this idea that we are, we're like introduced to that idea. The rest of our life is we're trying to like work that out trying to like figure it out with each other. Like, how much are we loved? Well, that seems like a barrier to love. Could we go past that? Would that be right? And be like, yeah, okay. I bet God loves us that much. I bet we could love the world that much. That's kind of what the process I think is after baptism, sort of as entrance to the church, figuring out what it means that this truth is that God is love. Spend the rest of your lives figuring that out, living into that, rejoicing it. Love, love someone for who they are, period. 
I mean, one of the themes you talk about in the sermon is love. And we want to talk a little bit more about what love means. Before we jumped on this call with you, we were, Dana and I were talking about baptism and how it's this very tangible thing that we can do to claim this thing that is so much bigger that we don't fully understand. And it's almost like every time I see someone get baptized, whether it's infant or a hundred, you know, it's emotional. It's like there's this undergirding of truth that exists in this thing we are trying to do to understand and hold just for a little bit like this, this love that is is so much bigger than our understanding. And so yeah, I, I wanted to count how many times you said love in the sermon, because it's a lot because in the Beatles song, all you need is love, they say they sing love 66 times, and it becomes this mantra. And I thought about that in your sermon, it is like this mantra of love. But this word love is like, it's an interesting word, right? Like, we very much have made it sentimental and domesticated. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily what it means. And so how would you describe the love that you're talking about in this sermon? Mm, that's such a fun question. I gave a sermon once where I talked about the experience of what love means is sort of like Einstein's theory of relativity. And what I meant by that, as clumsy of an analogy as it is, is that like he was like, look, this is what the math shows us is like e equals mc squared. But since that moment, everyone's been trying to work out like the realistic implications of that. We know it's true. We see it on the chalkboard. Yeah, like you put it all together. But everything, so much has changed in our world because we're like, if this is true, what's it mean for this? What's it mean for this? What's it means for, what does it mean for that? And we're just finding out all of the ways that that is true, sort of like functionally. I like thinking about love like that. Like it is this absolutely thing that we cannot wrap our minds around. We can't have a like solid concept of it. But what we can do is like practice it in little ways. And in all of those little ways, like discover the ways that it is is ultimately true. So I like the idea that love is not sentimental. It's always an act that you choose. Because sometimes we're like, love your enemies or, you know, love the people around you. Well, love is like a thing I feel is the way most of us think. So we're like, if I don't feel love for my enemy, like, what do you want me to do? If I don't feel love for God, like, what, what do you want me to do? And that's why I like the idea that it's, oh, it's, it should be, it should be an active practice, like practice acts of love for your enemy. Even if your heart is not in it, practice that act, do the loving act. It's that Wesleyan idea too, like you put yourself in these positions and eventually like the external actions, you know, can can sort of turn yourself in that way. So love is this thing like we, we can't ever figure it out, like settle it, but we can figure out all these little ways that it's true and that it works and changes things maybe. And I, I think that's where I was going. Chelsea and I had this conversation because I'm like, is love enough? And maybe I was too fixated on love being an idea versus love being a concrete act. Uh, love, love is a verb. So is, is love an, is enough when it comes to justice, when it comes to reconciliation? And maybe it's like, so what does love look like in action when you have to love your enemy, love your neighbor who you don't know? You know, how, how does that function? I think love rightly understood is enough, but it has to be love that is passive or sentimental or private is not love. Love ultimately is relational. So it is about like that word that comes up in the sermon, righteousness, like right relationship. That's kind of where Jesus puts everything as right relationship is works of justice without love may not be enough. 
Like, I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. Like when John the Baptist is like, if you got two coats and your neighbor doesn't have any, like you've got your neighbor's coat, you've stolen a coat. Like he's a hundred percent right on, but there is a way of engaging in acts of justice. I think that ultimately has love as its motivator and goal. And, and I don't know if it's, I think it is enough if we think about it in the right way, but maybe a better way to say it is it's always essential. Even if it's not enough, it's gotta be a part of everything. Always essential. Okay. I kind of think when it, when you're talking about love, it's kind of sometimes what I think about God. We don't know, like we can't hold all of God, but we know things about God. And like we maybe we can't hold the whole concept of love perfectly, but we know about love. Like we know when we do those things, like the loving act, even when it's hard, like that that's love or someone gives us that grace that like we can experience it. So it's like we can put, it's not that we know nothing about it. It's that we just know pieces of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask a difficult question this morning, because we agreed we wouldn't shy away from them. Do you have those in your life that you see as people to be fixed rather than to love? I thought about in your sermon, you use the word fix, love, and change, and they're very in different places. Was that intentional? And what, what's the difference between fix and change? Hmm. Was it intentional? Probably not. I was probably just <laughs> figuring out how I would land the sermon plane. But I do think there maybe is a difference between fix and change. I just know for me personally, I have, and this is where the sermon sort of came alive again. And I was like, oh, in the last three years, I've had some of these experiences and relationships or seen it as a danger that my primary relationship with someone is to fix them. That is so problematic. I was trying to wrestle with, is it different than to change them? And I think there is a nuance. I think so. At least the way we might use the term or the way I was thinking. I think we can change the world. We could, you know, you could change a garden and it's a, like an act of love. You're not like, oh, this thing is broken and now I'm going to do this. I think we can like change our bodies in ways that are loving and caring and see our bodies as things to be like worked on. Like we might have things and it's not just love it for the way that it is. Like sometimes to change something is an act of love because you're, you're caring about it. You're, you're, you know, doing whatever. You're just, you're not like there's something wrong. You're like, what if we did this? And what what sort of beauty would happen in that way? But fixing, I think, is always like, it's broken. You're broken. My primary relationship to you or to this thing is that you need to be different. And that is so, so problematic, I think, in so many ways. I think it definitely gives a sort of savior complex sometimes. I think it is very colonial way of thinking, especially in our theologies, to be like, we're coming in and we're going to fix this environment. We're going to fix these people. To think about, am I loving or am I fixing? It sets them up as opposites that I think asks us some really primary significant questions about, are you loving? Are you changing as a way of love? Or are you fixing because you're like, this thing's fundamentally broken? If our sole focus for people is to fix them, but we don't have love, it doesn't change anything. And what's your sense of how our world between those two, and, may, and there's areas of gray, but what do you, how do you think we primarily function? Especially in the United States. I, mm, I feel like a primary issue of the church and of sort of like faith traditions and evangelicalism in particular, but many different traditions is we have a stance of fixing 
far more than the rest of life or other organizations or communities. We see people, and I'm not like the idea of sin has no place or something. I think sin is super a super significant idea that we need to talk about and wrestle with in, in our faith. But if we have this like very like basic sort of perspective, which is like the world and the people in it are broken and our it's our job to like be a part of the fixing of the world, it just like sort of casts a, a lens over everything. And I feel like the church primarily sort of moves in this direction of we're going to fix the world, which sees people as means to an end. And I definitely get like, we're you take God out of it. It's all of a sudden we're humans are going to fix it. Wait a minute. It's not our job to fix it. It's our job to love and care for it. And God will, will, will transform that process. But I think it's very, to you, I think you said it's a, a savior complex. Like we're going to come in, we're going to fix everything. Yeah. And I wonder how baptism might in some instances play a role in that. You're fixed with this baptism. You know, I, I know I've, I've had friends over the years, you know, go down to the ocean and get dunked and all of a sudden they're fixed. Right. And and so I'm wondering about the how does baptism also weave into that or counteract that? I mean, you talk about it a little bit in your sermon, but yeah, I, you know, part of one of those like old liturgy lines that we read is, you know, be cleansed from sin, this like original sin idea, like everyone is born broken in some way. And I don't want to like gaslight the world and be like, everyone's totally fine. And, and no one has anything to work on. But this idea of like broken, like as soon as you're born, you're just already really messed up and we got to do this thing and then you're okay and then it's all it's all better it's such a bad theology it's so lifeless kind of baptism is about living into that you are loved and you can love which is the really important part of that too it can devalue people i think sometimes to be like you're loved and that's enough it's like no part of the goodness of love is like that you can love other people no one lacks that capacity so what i hear then is there's a response once you understand that you're loved, that you're beloved, then there's a response to love others, to love the community, to love the world. Yeah, yeah. And I do think it is that like motion to the world out of love that is like the great part of a life of faith. Yeah. Um, to know you're loved is necessary, but it's it's only it's that that then sort of overflows that then you're like, Mama, go love the world. People to be told that they have nothing to offer or that they are only there to be fixed, it sort of like reduces their dignity, I think, too. So I love the idea of like, we're so loved because everyone is so love that are our, we got to like do something with this love, like the Queen song, find me somebody to love. It's like one of the most Christian songs ever, my wife says, and she's right. <laughs> well, and then to do it in, in the context of community where it's like, and we all get to do this thing together and like the gift of that, like collectiveness of, of baptism also. It's not, it's not just individual. It's like the whole of the community. Yeah. We're all trying to figure it out together, which is cool. Yeah. I think we did about the collective element of baptism. It feels like often it's an individual act. No, it's a community act. It's collective act. Yeah. Which I like too, because like what we can do as individuals, whether to be loving or even to an engage in acts of love is so limited mm -hmm. and such a cool idea as a community that you can be like, okay, what can we do for this situation? What can we be in this moment for this person that it's not ultimately dependent on, on one of us to sort of do that? work. I feel like the question everybody has about baptism is, what if I don't get baptized? Mm. I don't want to say like, it doesn't matter because it's like, 
it's such an awesome thing. And it's so cool to be like, I was baptized and I am baptized. And like, what does that mean? And to have people around you who were like, you're loved, that's what it means. So like spend your life with that. I would say it's all right, <laughs> but I totally think you should be baptized because it's like so awesome with the right people. If this isn't a perfect analogy, but I kind of feel like it's like getting married. You are making a commitment, but also the community's there to say like, we want to do this and celebrate with you and just kind of to be grounded in the moment of like the sacredness that's happening it's along the same lines yeah and i think you said with the right people boy that that to me was super important with the right people because I have a lot of thoughts going through my head, but since we started this conversation, I can't believe I didn't think about it before. I don't know if you've ever watched The Righteous Gemstones. I have one. I feel like I'm really missing out. I haven't watched all of it, but it opens up with a baptismal episode. Like that's the big, that they, I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but they open up with like, if we, if we don't, and 5,000 people are saved in this baptism. And they went to like, I don't know where they went to. A, it, it just, it's it's a hot mess. And it goes, is it the right people? Were they really with the right people? I, I, it's a question because I don't think these people really cared about who they were as individuals and who they were as a society. And so I think that point of who you're with is really important to think about. Yeah. The flip side of baptism is like, it's yes, it's God's gift offered without price. But like one of the really significant things that I think happens, which is we're like, baptisms are public, they happen in worship, is we ask the folks sitting there, will you do these things? Will you help this person through the rest of their life in really tangible ways know that they are loved by God, that they can love the world, that they are called to love the world? You ask them, like, are you, are you going to hold up your end of the bargain on this? That baptism is sort of rightfully responded to ask something of the church, which is you have an obligation now to care for this person in your midst, in your presence. Will you do that? Will you be part of the way that they understand that they're loved in a really tangible way? The response to baptism, the sort of living into the thank you, misses something if it's this like drive-by baptism. We baptize you like you're good, go on your way sort of dynamic. Yeah, like your hell insurance, you're not going to hell. If you're baptized and you don't either remember that experience or let's just say you were baptized and it wasn't, you didn't have that experience. You didn't, you you ultimately were baptized in a community, but that community didn't raise you in, uh, you know, in, in the faith or, or even in a faith that was based in love, God's love, you know, do you, and they want to be rebaptized because now they've come into a new understanding. Oh, rebaptism. We really did get into it, didn't we? You know, I think it's like, it's part of the like cool interdependent idea of baptism and of the response to baptism is that which we do not remember, God remembers or others remember for us. It's a really cool thing, I think, as part of like childhood to have things that you don't remember that your parents remember for you or that your parents' friends remember for you. We've all met those people like our parents' friends and they're like, oh, I used to watch you when you were three and you jumped in the pool one time and I pulled you out, whatever. You're just like, I don't know. That's a great memory, but I, I don't remember that. So I hope you're enjoying this story that I have no concept of. There's this understanding of baptism, which is really cool, which is it doesn't have to be located in you. You don't have to have the memory of it for it to have been real, for it to have happened. There are those who remember that for you. You're not the self-contained individual, like you are part of something and somebody more. I think it's a really helpful idea, this idea of like that we're we're a little decentered in the community and in our history and memories by the people who help remember for us. 
I struggle with this to in all transparency. We have people who in our community who have been baptized in churches that have gone on to reject them or like literally throw them out. And so it's it's hard for me when they come asking to be rebaptized because they want to hold on to this like really sacred beautiful thing in a community that does support them and love them and want to walk with them on the journey. And I struggle with the re- the rebaptizing because I I hear while well, I hear what you're saying, I also like want to give them that experience. I want to help create that gift for them that they can hold on to and like this tangible thing that they can hold on to in in a spiritual world that is sometimes feels like a little higher. Yeah. Maybe something is not the right theology. And what I mean by that is it's like a little inconsistent with whatever sort of theologies we inhabit for ourselves or in our community. Maybe they're not the right theology, but they are the right act of love in that moment. And so there may be those those situations where I struggle to say rebaptize because I'm like, well, they were already baptized. And I really do feel like one act of baptism, even in the wrong situation with the wrong people, is God did what God wanted to do in that moment. And it is the response to that that we're still trying to figure out. But the most sort of like pastoral loving thing may be to reintroduce someone to the idea of baptism. And something you said, because I also am along, Chelsea and I have had a lot of conversations about this, but you you said something, again, that just made me think about it in that even though I, like, I, I was baptized as a baby, I have no recollection of it, right? And so, and I, you know, and I, I'm sure my parents could remind me about it or, you know, my dad or friends of theirs. It made me think of something like it's something bigger than me. It's something larger that if I believe in a God that is so expansive and so inclusive and so whole and perfect, then God was there in that moment. And it's not just about me. It's about God and the Holy Spirit being in that space and being with me on this journey. And that's how I ended up here right now in this moment with the two of you. Yeah. And I I, I never thought about it in that way, but it, it's it made me realize, you know, I don't remember it and I, maybe, maybe friends of mine do, but maybe it doesn't matter because if I trust in that that amazing, whole, expansive God, then I'm right where I need and I experience it every day and I experience it in this moment. I don't know. So thank you. There's a different way to think about it. Brett, what questions do you get asked about baptism? The main one is always like, well, what does this mean? You know, that's always such an unwieldy question because it means so much. And so I do talk about this is about God's gift. It is like this outpouring and recognition of God's love and grace. But I also then sometimes just I'm like, one of the things that we do is that we bless the baptism water. We sort of tell the story of water, how it shows up in scripture. It's about telling that story again, uh, about knowing that we are a part of that story. So that maybe it's not the answer isn't so much like, here's what it means in our theology and here's our beliefs. Like this is the little slot it fills. It's more like, well, this is the story that we're a part of. And here's what water has meant for us in all of these like beautiful, rich ways. Sometimes it's nice to just do like metaphor without explanation that it can do so much work for us. I love that. I mean, water is just, it's crucial. Like it's critical for our, our, our life, our sustainability. And it's, 
it's a beautiful experience and metaphor in this space for sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Jesus did that. Like what, what are the practical elements that are in front of us and how do we use them to create for ourselves and for the community? And, you know, they're like fingers pointing at the moon, right? They're like something that just like points to something bigger, but they're available. Yeah. And I always think like, what is right in front of me that is important or I can, yeah, have significance meaning to. And the other thing I like about that is how it spills out over that moment. So in communion, you have bread and wine. But one of the things Jesus says is like, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, which I sort of like to imagine. He's like, every time you have wine, remember this experience. So all of a sudden, like all wine, it's not just like, here's the one special time, (laughs) even bad wine. (laughs) <laughs> it's like it spills out in all these other places and times too. I say Friday nights are pizza, and I don't. I, I have a little. I have some wine on Friday nights, and that I, every Friday I'm like, here I am, Jesus, come join us for pizza and wine. You're right here with us. I digress. <laughs> you know, we did a baptism episode a number of years ago. I mean, from when we first started the podcast and we talked about, you know, every time you wash your hands, just the remembering of baptism. And it was amazing how many people really resonated with that experience that it's like a multiple times a day, like to feel like on your skin, on your body, this like washing of God's grace and like the remembrance of that we're part of the story too. And it was just like such a, I forgot how much people needed to hear that. And like that every year we do the remembrance of baptism because people need to be reminded that they too are beloved and are part of the story of God. And so as often as you do it. Yeah. It's about fixing what's broken in some way. You have Jesus say, no, I, I need to be baptized because what's going to happen in this baptism is going to put everything in right relationship, all things. And Jesus is baptized and as he comes up, there is a word that is announced. There's an act that happens. And the word that gets called out so that everyone can hear is beloved. One of my questions that I had as I was going through it is what holds people back? from claiming their beloved list. What, and, and we talked a little bit this, but, and we, we talked a little bit about it when we talk about brokenness, but what holds people back? Gosh. So much. <laughs> so much, right? Like, I don't wanna like all of a sudden sound like super hopeless, but it's easier to say like, what are the things that don't hold someone back from their belovedness? Like, that was like such a small number compared to the other one. And maybe it's just the folks that we know that we um, have here in the community, folks that are our neighbors with, the church, the world, bureaucracies in the world, systems of power, they're all just so good at, at telling us we're not valuable, that we're not loved, that we're means to an end, whether that's of production or of, you know, what we can produce or this myth of like able bodies versus disabled bodies or perfect bodies versus others, Uh, you know, those that are like broken or not broken, worthy of love. It just is like, it's a big system that is just so frighteningly good at telling us either we're unworthy of love, or I think, and I know I said it before, but it's the most insidious lie, which is like, you can't love, you don't have a thing to offer you, you're not able to do that. You're just here to receive, you're here to be on the other side of the table, you're here to get the services, not to offer anything. It's just, it's, it's so all pervasive, I feel like. Which, you know, as a parent of teenagers, my mind, 
mind as you're talking immediately goes to what happens with social media and what happens in a consumeristic society. And, you know, I, I just, my heart sinks a little bit because I feel like, I mean, while there is absolutely positive things out there on social media, I feel oftentimes it's, it's those other messages that are just pervasive. And I worry about our future generations. So I'm glad there's things like this. Yeah. When you were talking, the word that kept coming to me was consumerism and that even in church, we're supposed to be countercultural. It is still a come and consume the message and the music and the things. And, and how do we as, as like a church actually be countercultural to the consumeristic environments that we live in? Yeah, I, I love one of the ideas that was like Jesus talked so much about being a neighbor, which is like, I love the word because it's literally like nigh, like near someone, like the end is nigh, the end is near, like that's where neighbor comes from. It's like the one you are near, this physical physicality of this, like who you are with. And I love the idea of neighbor because it's not, I'm calling you to like fix the world and be above them. And I'm not calling you to like ignore the world and be distant and separate. I'm calling you to just be like side by side with people. And that's an idea that feels so still underused is this idea of being a neighbor, even on Sunday mornings or in a church community to be like, everyone who walks in, you are welcome to be a neighbor with those around you, whether you produced something or don't produce something, whatever the categories are that the world has sort of just put us into our little boxes with. Everybody come into this space and we can live into this idea that everyone can be a neighbor and everyone is a neighbor in this. Like we can all be side by side with each other, which sounds simplistic, but it's so hard to do, right? Because there's just, well, here's what I bring into the space and here's and here's where I am and here's this power difference differential and here's all of these things but like i feel like if the church can just be like how do we be neighbors how do we be neighbors with each other how do we be neighbors with the world like not above not below not far just like side by side that's the right way to love that's the right way to like know you're loved and be loved is to be to be neighbors next to each other in that way but as you said so hard we have such a hard time with that yeah. I was actually talking to some people yesterday who are Revolutionary Love Project, who Valerie Cora is like, you know, spearheading this this project. And we were talking about how people, like so many well-intentioned people that, you know, go to church and are learning about racism and power dynamics and like all these, they want to do something like really big. They want to make like this big difference in the world. And like the hardest part about it is it's in like those small little ways that you were just talking about that like overwhelm the world. And it's it doesn't feel necessarily like this big sexy I accomplished you know this great change in the world but it's these really little moments that are are so meaningful and powerful what love actually looks like doing the thing you don't want to do because it serves someone else or you know whatever it is and it's those little things together are what it actually looks like and that's the hard part because it's like inch by inch as opposed to like seeing all this progress or seeing all this the big thing that you did yeah as you're talking it makes me think of I mean we also not only do we have consumerism and social media but we have the Western development country of the United States. It's so individualized. Everything is back to me, myself, and I. And that's exactly what, what, what I hear you saying, Brent, is, is think of others, neighbor, community, collective. It's how do we get, we have to kind of actively work against the fact that we've been born and raised in me. Yeah. I don't know if this is true, but I heard somebody say it once. If it's not true, it should be. That scripture oftentimes will assume that community is like the default mode of being human 
and the idea of the individual is kind of like an abstraction out of that. Like it's this thing you got to be like, what if we subtracted everybody from one? Like, what would that be? And somebody like, well, that'd be an individual or something, but you're not going to find that in the real world. And we have in some ways like reversed that where we assume that the, the individual is like the real thing. And to be in community is kind of this other thing that you get when you put a bunch of individuals together. A hundred percent. All those ways that we're individuals are all of the things that lead to really like life denying ways of existing in the world. It harms all of us and it harms some folks more than others for sure. But it it is that way of being like alienated from each other. And there's just so many systems and power dynamics, I think, that that use that for their purposes rather than, you know, ours. 100%. That makes complete sense to me. And I, I think it's a, an interesting way to communicate to people, especially in the Christian faith tradition, that as you're as you're listening to sermons, as you're reading scripture, as you're contemplating, you know, Christianity, what if you look at it from a, like, start at the base level of community, not of individual. That's the lens. And that's so hard. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to uh, maybe it was even the beginning of this conversation about asking questions that are really difficult. What are tips for creating spaces where questions can be asked? Like, how do we allow each other to ask questions that are hard or you might feel, you know, stupid asking or whatever? Like, how do we create space for that? Yeah. I, one thing that we do that I think has worked pretty well is we've just set a time every month. We call it Faith on Tap, you know, like, you know, beer and Bible, whatever, everyone gets a chance to drink. And then you ask the questions that you you brought for the night. It, it's it's a nice pairing. And it, it is just a time where we say like, we're here to ask questions about this topic or this idea. We're not here as pastors or staff or leaders to like then give you the right answer. This is a time to ask questions and for us to wrestle with the questions. So then we resist this desire and need to be like, well, here's the thing that might sum all of this up. We just kind of at the end of the time to say, here's the questions that we came up with and here's how they resonated with each other. So I think something like doing that, whether in worship or or setting particular time for that can really help, which is just like, we're just gonna ask, just gonna ask questions right now. And and nobody, nobody gets to be the one that's like, well, here's the answer, blah, blah, blah. You know, I still remember the time that we were asking questions about like free will and determinism. Like it was this great and somebody was like so obnoxious. And he was like, well, the answer is God did it for this reason, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that's not the point. The point is not to be like, oh, now we answered it. Like, okay, everybody go home. Like we've got that little piece. Like questioning in and of itself is so good. That's like, I think why parables are so great because it'll always churn up questions. Well, and my guess, and what you're describing is you and, and, and the folks in your community have created the space to do that. You've created the environment, the, the, the care, the, the authenticity and the vulnerability to allow that to happen, which you know, which is important. It's important to do that. And um, not every place does. So and it's good because it's what it's scary, but it's also really fun for people to be like, Oh, I can ask the questions that I didn't, I never got a chance to ask. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like permission giving. Like I feel like so, so often, like I know when I was growing up, it wasn't, it was the Bible said it, I believed a type of mentality about everything. And it was just, there wasn't any permission to kind of wrestle question, push back, like, and I, and, and, and as a result of that, I missed a lot of things. Yep. I mean, I'm still on doing some of that stuff. So. Yeah. When you do have questions, you're like, where do I go? Oh, you know what? I can't go here. So forget it. I'll just, I'll just be done with it. You're done, you know? Yeah. But we do ask all of our guests one question at the end is kind of our wrap up. You know, as you look at the landscape of Christianity and the, the changing dynamics of our, our denomination and our culture, what would you say, what is your hope for the future of the church? I would hope that whatever comes next for the church, which I think will look radically, radically different, that it will always have community as a core part of it. It may be the ways that we practice community right now is this sort of like fading model of Sunday mornings gathered in one particular space and time that that will not continue to hold true. My hope is that we continue to be community with each other, that that's like a real, real thing. Like you can probably count the word community maybe as many times as you counted love and like what I say, because I think it it just so matters because it's so missing in our lives. Um, that when it shows up, it's like, what is that thing? Oh my gosh. It's like people really caring for each other, not as individuals as something else. And that story continues to be a part of who we are and what we do. I feel like those are two kind of essential things that have always shown up in different ways for the church, um, the idea of community and the importance of story. So whatever it looks like, I hope with I hope that we have like such a good time with it and we're not stressed about that it doesn't look like what it used to look like. Amen. Well, Brent, thank you for your time and for sharing your, we're just really, we're grateful for the conversation and the sermon and also the work you do at Normal Heights. And you've been such like a a model for us on how we can continue. So we just appreciate the work you put out into the world. So thank you. You're both awesome. Thank you so much for what you do. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter, and keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective Table.